Hi, this is Brian Janikowski, uh, Friday, May 25th, before the long weekend. I'm Christian Thwaites. I'm Emily Tegenberts, and let's get started with this week's market chat, Christian. So you wrote this week a little bit about emerging markets, and this was kind of a follow-up to our conference call that we had earlier in the week. Um, but you speak about, you talk about uh, these two separate tracks of the emerging markets. One uh, track that we've been hearing a lot about that um, are kind of personified by the countries of Turkey, Argentina, um, and then kind of the second track uh, personified by the, 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 the uh, countries China, Taiwan, and South Korea. Now, tell us what the difference is between these, these two different groups um, and why it matters. Well, broadly, I, uh, I, this is kind of a little bit of an oversimplification, but the first group, so to Turkey, Argentina, to some extent the Philippines, uh, have um, high U.S. dollar borrowings which obviously they're having to service from non-dollar dominated GDP. So uh, two things happen. If the dollar uh, increases in strength, which it has latterly, uh, it was pretty weak in 2017, but it's had a little bit of a bounce in the last few weeks, um, their servicing costs go up uh, just because they've got to earn more uh, currency units to pay the US dollar uh, obligations. And um, and then the second thing is, as rates creep up, which they have been, particularly uh, at the short end, uh, those those uh, those the, the carrying costs, the refinancing costs of their debts are going to be high. So that's basically, if you're looking at countries with high uh, U.S. dollar-dominated debt and high budget deficits, then we've got a problem, and that's exactly what's happened. Mm. Now, there's plenty of emerging market countries that have some of the biggest foreign exchange reserves in the world. Uh, China, uh, Taiwan, South Korea uh, being sort of the, the big three, and there's absolutely no problem there. But um, I think what's happening is that <clears throat> investors buy emerging markets as a block. Uh, you know, so a ticker like EEM, which is a very large ETF tracking uh, the emerging markets, people buy that. And if they feel there's some element of the con of the constituent parts of emerging markets which are going through problems, then they just kind of back off. And I think that's sort of had that uh, contagion effect of uh, you know relatively small stories uh, affecting a much bigger pool. But having said that, this is exactly where market problems come from. So um, it, in the bigger scheme of things, we've also had uh, sorry, I'm sort of taking your question, expanding a little bit, but uh, we've had. Italian uh, uh, sovereign bond yields jump quite dramatically over the last couple of weeks. It becomes pretty clear that the uh, Five Star Movement and the other uh, populist um, party are going to be able to sort of a campaign have campaigned on an anti-EU and anti-austerity platform. So, uh, who would think about uh, Italian bonds? I mean, they're, they're a big market, but they're not traded that much internationally. They tend to be held by domestic investors. And so, just like with Argentina and Turkey, you kind of get these small flashpoints, which are not mainstream investment destinations or markets, but they cause a lot of concern. I think that's what we've got going on in emerging markets. So... You know, because people tend to buy the emerging markets in bulk, so to speak, um, not really discriminating, how should people kind of protect their emerging markets position? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's liable to be, uh, you know, possibly some, uh, an overweight position just with all like, the gangbuster year that we had last year. Um, so how, how are investors uh, to approach this? Well, I, I think there's... there's uh, uh, 
a couple of ways. Obviously, um, you can sell your emerging market position and, and wait for it to sort of come back. But that's a variation of market timing, which is not only tax inefficient, but extremely difficult to do. Um, secondly, you can start splitting up your emerging market exposure and say, well, I, what I really want is Southeast Asia or uh, Latin America or Eastern Europe, although, God forbid, I don't know why you'd want that one. But you can certainly do that and, and sort of then take its individual components up and, and do it that way. And a third one is one that we'll probably be doing, which is where we put some sort of collar on the investment, on the exposure to emerging markets, where we would have a participation in the upside, but with a cap, but then some pretty considerable downside. But usually you have to structure that through a there are a few mutual funds that do this, but they're not really the way to do it. Uh, you usually structure that through through a note. But otherwise, I would say at the other end, if you're a very long-term investor and can withstand the volatility, then then keep the exposure. But it, it's certainly going to be a, a little bit of a rough ride, I think, for a while. You also wrote about um, this kind of curious movement that we saw in the two-year Treasury Um during the, the when the Fed minutes was released last week, can you talk a little bit about that and and why that matters? Yeah, well, the the narrative for most of this year has been from the Fed that number one there would be at least three and probably four um, uh, rate increases. So that's the first one. Second one was that the Fed under Powell, uh, you know, changed hands in February, has talked about the very low unemployment numbers and has been speaking about the sort of specter of inflation. You're right behind that now, people have been following our blogs. This fear of inflation is vastly overrated, but nevertheless, there are people who think that that could happen. I don't think the Fed is, uh, you know, so myopically um, focused on it, but they talk about it a fair amount. Um, and then, thirdly, we got a slightly more hawkish tilt to the Fed uh, with the voting members changing in 2018 anyway, and then. Uh, John Williams from the San Francisco Fed heading over to the New York Fed, so he has to be replaced, and one of his replacements might be a slightly more hawkish guy, so uh, or, or person. So, um, so with all of that, uh, people were expecting a little bit more of a hawkish noise. So then the Fed minutes come out on Wednesday afternoon, and lo and behold, there's a discussion in there about letting inflation run hot for a little bit. Um, now, it's typically Fed language, Fed speak, so it's difficult to get exactly what they mean. But most of the market took that as being, well, it doesn't mean they're going to uh, ratchet up rates the minute there's a 2% print on the CPI or something, or actually more likely the um, the uh, PCE measure of inflation. So, so then people are, okay, well, then they might keep rates low for a little bit. And we saw this pretty dramatic drop in the two-year rate from 258 to 253 almost immediately. And then it eased up again, which means that yields went down, prices went up uh, for the rest of the week. And, but that's a big move for the two-year. Most, most you get most of the price action on the 10-year, uh, 5, 7, and 10, and beyond. You don't usually get much on the two. So we kind of viewed that as the market sort of being caught wrong-footed and, uh, and reacting very quickly. Um, you also wrote about kind of the um, the news coming out of the Commerce Department this week around um, uh, automobile imports. Now, is this just noise that we have to worry about? Do we have to actually worry? I mean, the the steel tariffs really haven't been you know uh, all uh, should I say cr as cracked up as they as they um, were put forth. Uh, when they were released, and the market reacted very violently to that. But 
Um, should we really be worried about these, these automobile imports? Well, yeah, I think I think we do. Um, so this is the, the Commerce Department utilizing um, uh, a rather obscure section of the of, of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, which and that and that section was put in really in times of war, so that you know imports could be restricted if there was uh, a war footing. Well, so now they've been used twice. This is the second time, and. Um, and and the announcement basically says we're looking at auto imports and the U.S. industry has been unfairly treated. So um, the auto industry is actually incredibly complicated. There's about 95 million units are produced worldwide. So, you know, China produces 22 million but doesn't export a lot of them. U.S. produces um, uh, a, a little less than that but um, but does export them. But this is the problem. Uh, if you take a, you know, the big... Uh, the big three, you know, the, the old Chrysler now owned by uh, Fiat and GM and, and Ford, they don't, none of the cars that you buy in the U.S. are wholly made in the U.S. Uh, they're made in Mexico and Canada and either in entirety or, or completed. Uh, and uh, probably at least 80% of any of the American manufacturers' cars in, in the U.S. are not are not uh, made in the U.S. In fact, the only car which is 100% made in the U.S. is Tesla, uh, and and that's less than 1% of U.S. production. So it's fiendishly difficult to unpack exactly what constitutes an American car or not. And in the blog, we talk about uh, Germany. So uh, German automobiles, there's about half a million imported into the U.S., but then the U.S., uh, German manufacturers, so Daimler-Benz, VW, and and um, and BMW manufacture nearly a million units here, half of which go overseas. So, uh, what exactly are you going to target? <laughs> uh, you know, the 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 BMWs made in in Munich and sold here, or the BMWs made in uh, in Alabama and and sold um, overseas. So it's really difficult. Um, but anyway, I think the first reaction was uh, not good for for. Manufacturers, and we show a graph where these companies were off about three or four percent. And these are big, big companies. I mean, Toyota is a $225 billion market cap, it's the single largest stock on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, about five percent of the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Some of these com co companies are very big constituents in their national markets. So, yeah, we saw this big sell off, and I think we'll just have to wait and see. We've got a waiting period now exactly what they're going to investigate, but. It does seem another example of, uh, you know, a, a fairly draconian sounding announcement coming out, followed by uh, a lot of um, backroom deals <laughs> and carve outs. And, and so we'll actually see what the damage is. But again, but again, it's the markets don't like these kind of uh, flare ups. And if, if it is so difficult to kind of uh, target um, different players in the automobile market in, in this way that they're trying to do, um, is there a possibility that nothing could happen at all? Yeah, I think there is. I think, uh, look, I, if, if I were running the government affairs at Ford, I would be um, you know, calling up uh, uh, all of my constituents to, to essentially uh, get, <laughs> get this derailed because I would be very nervous that my, you know, Ford plant in Mexico and Canada would be subject to these tariffs. 
in which case I've just made my vehicles a lot less uh, competitive relative perhaps to my own vehicles made in Detroit. So uh, I, I think this could well, um, it, you know, this could be one of the things where it initially looks simple and then it gets really difficult, really complicated. And I think, uh, you know, these, these supply chains are so complicated these days and so intertwined that I think, uh, um, you know, it, it will probably be less, as I said, sort of draconian and extreme than it first sounded. Now, is this uncertainty or the kind of all of this uncertainty that that follows these policy announcements and then, you know, kind of dissolves into backroom deals, as you had said, it's often been said that the, the market does not like uncertainty. Is uncertainty just as bad as, quote unquote, bad news? No, I think markets always, you know, they talk about the, the markets climbing a wall of uncertainty. They, they can manage that, I think. I think what they're what they're doing here is, um, you know, the initial reaction is. We don't don't forget also. There's a lot of algorithmic trading in the you know setup in the world. So, uh, you know, someone somewhere wrote an algorithm which said if uh, a, a member of the administration or the Department of Commerce talks about auto tariffs, uh, sell the following six companies, and you know, so then you would do that quickly. Uh, and then you might think about it longer term. So that, I, I think the markets are just, you know, there's an initial reaction, then there's a thought process, um, but now we don't know. I, in fact, I, I suspect we won't really hear much about this right now unless we, the EU for certain will come back uh, under Cecilia Malmstrom, actually one of very impressive lady who, who uh, runs the uh, trade negotiations for the EU. And um, she, uh, you know, certainly they'll they'll come back, and the EU is not going to take this lying down. They'll they'll talk about uh, counter tariffs, and uh, um, you know, we'll see see where it ends up. Lastly, let's talk about the volume smile. Uh, um, you wrote about this concept. So, what is it, um, and what does it mean? Well, very simply, if you kind of overlay, we have a chart uh, which shows it, and it basically shows the um, a proxy for. New York Stock Exchange volume and New York Stock Exchange volume is going to be very similar to NASDAQ and other exchanges. But uh, essentially what's happened is that about 40%, you would expect in a market that the market opens on the East Coast at 9.30 and closes at 4, that it would be fairly uniform. People come to work and they trade throughout the day. They might take a slight dip uh, at lunch. But actually what you see is a is well over 50% of the trading done in the first 45 minutes of the opening and then um, uh, then sorry between you know, between the opening and the last half hour well over 50% of the uh, day's volumes are traded so it leaves another seven hours where the other 50% is done so you kind of see this spike of volume at the beginning spike of volume at the end not much in the middle so you kind of got this curve or smile shaped uh, profile to the volume and people have noticed this and we're not sort of first out of the gate on this but uh, but it does mean all things being equal that if you show up trying to do a big trade at 12 30 in the morning you're probably going to run into a liquidity problem on your trade which means that there's a little bit more volatility uh, so it's kind of this very, it's this it's rather bizarre paradox that we've got highly efficient trading vehicles like ETFs, uh, potentially cre creating some instability and volatility in the market as a whole. So uh, look, there's really not much to be done except that uh, you know if we're buying or selling, you probably want to do it first thing in in the morning uh, and, or last day at night because obviously. We're not big enough to, 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 to move the market. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's odd, and it's one of these sort of um, side effects of, of of the way the markets are driven and the and the volume invested in passive indexes. And the ind- and the ETF that we single out here, SPY, is one we stay away from for various reasons because it's so big and trades, uh, or, you know, it trades ten percent of its volume every day. So it's like two thousand percent turnover. Now, you know, we usually get mad at a mutual fund company if it has a hundred percent turnover. So this is. You know, 20 times that, uh, and so it's not necessarily a, a greatest vehicle to track the S&P 500. Well, thank you very much, Christian. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody, and uh, please, if you find us on uh, Apple iTunes, uh, give us a rating. It always helps other people to find us. And here's the disclosure: Please note the discussion of our investment investment strategy, including our research investment process, represents our investment investment data's commentary, subject to change without notice. We cannot assure the type of investment discussed in this commentary will outperform any other investment strategy in the future, nor can we guarantee that such investment will present the best more attractive risk adjusted in the future. Uh, this is for general information purposes only. References to individual securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell. Securities mentioned in this commentary are several unsuccessful ones made by us and do not represent all the securities we have purchased or the recommended. Though we deem reliable sources of the statistical and other information referred to this commentary, we cannot guarantee that the accuracy or completeness of any statements uh, and numerical data past performance is no indication of future results.